You are listening to KTOO News Juno. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told on February 14th at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Up in the Air. Music was performed by Michelle and Jim Hale. Heavenly choir of the life and the times of the mall of Our first storyteller tonight is Sarah Hannon. Sarah is a lifelong Alaskan and a storyteller by nature. She is a member of the Mudroom Storyboard and an alumni presenter from previous seasons. She spent 20 years at Juno Douglas High School as a classroom teacher and is not sure how she will ever learn about new music and movies in the next phase of life. One thing she knows for sure is that life is full of opportunities to travel, laugh, and connect. Shouldn't some of you be up here sharing your stories with others, she says. Please welcome Sarah. Okay, so that idiom, up in the air, as in equivocating, undecided, undetermined, that's not me. I'm a middle child and a Capricorn. That means I got a double dose of stubborn, obstinate, determined, defiant, and thrown on top of that, the up in the air from my life is that sense of flying. When I was a kid, if you could crawl on it, jump off of it, or lean over, I was in. Now that meant that it resulted in some scars and injuries and broken bones. I wasn't a bad kid, but again, when someone said don't and you're a middle child, you must. And when you're a Capricorn and they said you can't, well then damn the head forward and go. Fast forward a few years, I made it through childhood, and at 49, I was with St. Schwarting, the orthopedic saint who heals the lame. And I was going to let him heal me, make me walk again, getting a whole new hip for my 50th birthday. And he says, have you ever injured that leg? And I say, well, I broke that ankle skydiving. And I think we spent some time on the injury and the impact and how it drove my femur into my hip and was a wild recovery and probably was the beginning of the 30-year decay of my hip, which when he said, how have you been walking on this for the last 20 years? I said, well, with a little limp, you know. And I didn't really think too much he wasn't that interested in the backstory. We talked about the injury, and I realized I really hadn't told the story of how I broke my leg skydiving for a very long time, but I put it aside. And a couple years after that, with my new bionic hip, I'm off adventuring in Australia with two of my nieces who are in their 20s. Now, I'm the middle sister, and their mother is my older sister, so their mother had always thought of me as reckless and poor judgment, because I'm her younger sister, right? And I know that I had probably compensated, so when I was around her children, I tried to be extra responsible and resemble a responsible adult so she didn't take the children from me, would let me play with them. And now it was 20 years later, and I was getting to play with her adult children, who still thought of me as kind of the staid auntie. But as we spent three weeks adventuring in Australia, they kept coming up with things that they'd say, well, we should try this, and I'd go, yeah, I'm in. Um, and we had tried to go hot air ballooning and bungee jumping and zip lining, and these are all things I'd done. And so when they'd throw it out there, let's try this, and I'd go, yeah. 
But we never made them happen. And we were down to just a few days left in Australia, and Amy, the older niece, said, I want to go skydiving. We spent a couple hours at one of those booking agents where you're arranging things. And finally, we've got it all figured out. And it's going to be the next morning, really early. Have to get up at 3 AM, be on a van at 4 AM, drive a couple hours to the Blue Mountains outside of Sydney. And niece Amy, who is the sweetest of all our nieces, she's now a nurse. It is a true calling. She's the most compassionate, kind individual. And she says with a little lilt in her voice, this is going to be really fun if nobody dies. And I say, don't say that. Now, she's not usually the one to needle you a little bit. She has a sister that does that for her. And about an hour later, as we're really finishing our logistics of how we're going to make this all happen the next day, and she says, this is going to be so much fun if we don't die. And I reel around, and I give her my best teacherly stare down and say, if you say that again, we're not going. And she says, well, we spent a lot of money. And I know that by now, the two 20-somethings depend on me to wake up in the morning because they can't hear the alarm. They're still 20-somethings that only hear it if they have to get up. And they have me to wake them up. And I said, no, really, I will sacrifice the money. Do not say that before we go skydiving. And they're like, well, and I said, I will tell you the story of the last time I skydived, but not until we've jumped. That seems to satisfy them and buys me the day. And we get up the next morning, it's 3 a.m., and we get in a van, and every other customer is Chinese, Korean, or Japanese, no English speaking. And um, we spend a couple hours in a van, and we have this fabulous day at a jump center. And I immediately, when I get there, recognize the caricatures of the last time I'd skydive. There's the old guy, there's the old pilot, there's the young bucks, there's the hot chick who just comes in to torture them all. And it's a gorgeous day, and they had had to have a jump festival over the weekend, but some winds had come up, so there were a lot of people hanging around. And the last thing these sport jumpers want to do is deal with the tandem jumping tourists who are arriving to go two by two. And it turns out we're going to be the last jumpers, the tandem jumpers of the day. So we have the whole day hanging out at the jump center. And there's a point where one of the old guys, who's really my age, says, so the last time you jumped was the 80s, back when sex was safe and skydiving was dangerous? And I say, yeah, that's it exactly. We have a fabulous jump. I'm on the ground before my nieces land. I was the first one out of the plane. And both of them have the significant adrenaline rush just like I'd remembered it. One of them is jumping like a kangaroo. She can't stop believing how much fun this was. This was so great. Nothing like this feels like it. And if you've ever let go of the swing when you're at that apex, that's that feeling, you know, where you fly. They're really excited. I'm thinking maybe I'm not going to have to tell them my story of the last time I skydived. But it comes up that night, and I say, well, that's when I broke my leg skydiving. But really, I broke my leg because I wasn't paying attention to my landing. Well, why aren't you paying attention to your landing? You're pretty attentive to things, Auntie. And I said, well, I was thinking about my friend Mickey, who had just spent 45 minutes giving CPR to, because he died that day skydiving. And she says, people die doing this? I said, not only do people die doing this, I saw a guy do die doing this. And the day that Mickey died was a big sport jump. And there were about 25 people in the air making formations. And they probably stayed in formation too long. Because when they then separated to open their canopies, the thing that happened in the old days, you have a big round chute, and you swing a long ways. 
And Mickey and another guy had a mid-air collision, and he was thrown over his canopy. So his canopy was partially collapsed into what's called a Mae West. We think he was probably unconscious at the time, if not already dead, because he didn't do what an alert diver would do, which is you cut away your chute that's not working because you've got a reserve. But instead, he reached enough velocity that his reserve chute deployed into his partially inflated chute, causing them both to collapse into a streamer, and he came down to the ground. And we could see it all happening, everyone on the ground watching him fly through the sky. Um, happened that my jump master's name was Sarah. She was an ER nurse, had a full EMT kit. We were on the ground as soon as he hit and bounced. Not a drop of blood. She said, start CPR. And the first thing you do when you start CPR is find the sternum. And I say, there's no sternum. She says, guesstimate. He was a bag of jelly. He never stood a chance. And like we said, he was probably dead on the impact of their heads together up in the air. We decided that day, everyone, after he was taken away and the ambulance declared dead, you need to get back on the horse one more time. Try one more jump so that you're not fearful. And I was never afraid, but clearly when I hit the ground that day, I wasn't thinking about my landing. And I was 20, so what if I broke my leg? I'll do this again. I'm sure I'll do it a million more times. Well, it was almost 35 years before I jumped again. And would I jump out of a perfectly good airplane today? Absolutely. If you've ever had the urge and you ever have the opportunity, Go for it. Be up in the air. Take that moment of flight. Next life, I'm hoping I'm a bird because that's that sensation you want up in the air. Our next speaker tonight is Larry Johansson. Larry Johansson was born and raised in Ketchikan, Alaska, and moved to Juneau after college shortly after Eagle Crest opened. He has traveled to nearly 40 countries worldwide and can claim to have ridden a camel and an elephant before trying a horse. He has written three books about Alaska, Extra Tough, An Alaskan Way of Life, Finding Juno, Its People, Places, and Past, and The Alexander 18, a story based on his travels to every wilderness area in Southeast Alaska. He has won statewide awards for his photography and is a contributor for Alaska Magazine and the Juno Empire. Uh, Larry also just recently started streaming the uh, city, borough, and assembly meetings, so check that out online. Please welcome to the stage, Larry. It was my father who could tell stories. He always wanted to be a pilot, but his eyesight was too poor to allow it to happen. I used to stop on the way home from school and watch the airplanes take off from the waterfront in Ketchikan. They were fascinating. They were grumman gooses. You know what a grumman goose is, some of you old timers. They were left over from the war if you can picture a canoe with a surfboard laid over the bow, you've got what it looks like pretty, pretty well down. Well, to a kindergarten, it was fascinating to watch this improbable aircraft actually rise out of the water 
It's kind of the bumblebee of airplanes. You wonder how it could fly. But it did. I think the fascinating thing about it was the noise that it made when it tried to take off. The only way to describe it would be a symphony of jackhammers. <laughs> it was improbable, but I used to watch them take off. It took about four or five of these planes to take off from the water and fly over to Annette Island where you could catch the plane to go to Seattle. My father, I think, was fascinated with the fact that the mechanics of flight. I was more fascinated with the fact that the people were actually leaving Ketchikan. <laughs> because most people come, they arrived in by airplane or by boat. I was born there. I didn't know any other world. And all the roads ended. And that's quite a concept to deal with. There are pictures of my family and I at the end of the road. Who grows up with the end of the road? So I got a sense of living in a fishbowl. And I never quite got over it. A sneaking suspicion that perhaps Ketchikan was really the only world that there was. Was it Shakespeare that said the world is a stage and all the people are players? I had a sense that maybe the world wasn't really real. Have any of you seen this program, The Truman Show? Yes, that's it exactly. I felt like Truman. Truman lived on an island and everything was prefabricated for him. If even today, if you told me that the world wasn't real, that everything was laid out, I would probably believe you. Deep down, I really think that God is a seventh grader in some society. <laughs> and the, the world is a make of civilization project. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense to explain some of the things that are going on in the world. <laughs> you can see the assignment. Once your planet is populated, turn up the heat and see if they'll stop killing each other <laughs> and save themselves. Well, that probably explains why I went to nearly 40 countries in the world. But when I did, I would go off-grid. Back in those days, off-grid meant a little bit different for kids. Their phones used to be connected to wires. <laughs> and going off grid meant something entirely different. I would go to places in the world where I would be gone for four weeks off a grid climbing a mountain or some bizarre place in the world. But I would always come back and call my father and just to check in to let him know that everything was okay. And he'd be. I could picture him sitting in his chair and I would call in from some bizarre place in the world and he'd go, why do you want to go? Why would anybody ever want to go there? But he cared for his family very much and he had the stories that my family tells again and again. One of them is when I was a teenager, I took off with my dog and hiked back on the mountains. 
I got to a place where I could get down to the road, but I reached a cliff and I couldn't get the dog down. So I tied him to a tree and went home and told my dad, and he said he did the right thing, but he was very concerned about the dog. So he sent me back the next morning and I found the dog was okay, and he said, I'll come back for you. I've got a, I'll, come, I'll think of something to help you get the dog down. So I'm sitting there high on the mountain on a cliff, and I start to hear, and it gets louder. I realize it's a helicopter, and it's coming toward me, and I'm like, that's a strange place for a helicopter to be. <laughs> and he lands and pops out of the helicopter with a big smile on his face, and we, I grab the dog, we get under the helicopter, and it drops down to the road where my mother and my brother and my sister are there. And my dad is so pleased with himself that he's <laughs> figured out how to save us. He was very clever with airplanes. He once had to make the airplane terminal, the ferry that goes over to the Ketchikan airport, he absolutely had to make this plane for this meeting, but he missed the ferry, and so that meant that he was gonna miss the plane. But he was pretty creative. He saw a float plane docked on the Ketchikan side, so he ran down and hired the guy to fly him across the channel. <laughs> he made it, he made this meeting, but it, he had a great story to tell from then on. Well, about a year ago, he was getting ready for another flight. He woke up in the morning and he wasn't feeling well, so my mother took him to the hospital. And they said they needed to go south, but he never made it. So this story is dedicated to my father who passed away last year. Thank you very much. Our next storyteller is Margot Connolly. Margot is excited and nervous to be performing for the first time at Mudrooms. She's been an audience member multiple times, but has finally built up the nerve to tell one of her own stories. So please be nice. Margot is originally from New Bedford, Massachusetts, but has lived in many different places since leaving there after high school. She and her husband, Roger, have lived in Juneau for about two and a half years. She likes to drag Roger to unromantic events on Valentine's Day. <laughs> One year when they lived in Kodiak, she brought him to work with her at Fish and Game, I assume this is on, Van on Valentine's Day, where they spent the evening in a cannery weighing and measuring dead Pacific cod and cutting them open to assess the condition of eggs and sperm left in the carcasses. Margot now has a much more civilized job as an admissions counselor at UAS. Margot. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm pregnant. Although I was not pregnant in 2014, when I went over to spend a weekend in Anchorage with my pregnant friend, Erica. Um, Erica normally lives in Cordova, but you can make a baby there, but you're not supposed to let it exit your body in Cordova. So she had to hang out in Anchorage for about a month waiting to deliver. Um, so her husband was scheduled to arrive about a week before her due date. And I went over about two weeks ahead of time to hang out 
do some really exciting big city things like go to Target. Um, so our weekend got off to a great start, and then Saturday evening she informed me I was going to help her make a belly cast, which essentially is paper macheing your torso. I had never done it, but I figured I was up to the challenge. I like to think I'm pretty artsy, but I was not prepared for what I saw when I walked into the room to get started. There was Erica in all her pregnant glory, perched on a swiveling desk chair, newspapers covering the floor, totally naked, except for a very small pair of underwear bottoms. Now, I've seen naked women before, but I'd never seen a naked pregnant lady before. And as you can imagine, things are different. Things are rounder and larger, but the colors are a lot more intense. Um, I had no idea. Now I do. So despite, you know, a little bit of a rocky start, I actually got really into the belly cast process. And by the end, I was experimenting, you know, with like, what's the best technique to get the ideal breast shape? You know, do I lift up and put the plaster strip under and over? Or do I just do one long strip over the top? Um, answer is one long strip over the top, little indent on the bottom. So by the end, the cast looked really good, and it was ready to serve the purpose um, demonstrated in the 1970s instruction manual that we had, which was to hold chips and dip for men with mustaches and sideburns. <laughs> That's really what the picture was. So Sunday's activity um, was a little different. We went to something called a red tent event. Um, which was a bunch of ladies sitting around on pillows in a softly lit room talking about birth. A lot of the women were pregnant, some had already had children, and some were trying to get pregnant. Pretty sure I was the only one there because I'd wanted to go to Target. And we started off by, you had to go up into the middle of the room, light a candle, take a stone, and say your name, your mother's name, your grandmother's name, and your child's name in a very dramatic voice. So like, Hello, my name is Denise, daughter of Susan, granddaughter of Rebecca, mother of Jacob. Light your candle, go back. So when it was my turn, I went up and I was like, uh, my name's Margot, uh, daughter of Barbara, granddaughter of Anne, mother of no one. Uh, but I did have a really nice guinea pig named Liam. Um, <laughs> lit my candle, went back to my seat. So even though it was super awkward in the beginning, by the end, I actually found that I had kind of enjoyed the whole experience, but I blame that on all the hormones and pheromones that were floating around in the room, and they definitely had an impact on Erica, because later that night, she went into labor. So let me remind you, this was not at all in the plans for my weekend. Um, Erica had a very detailed birth plan, all mapped out. Nothing was left up in the air. Her husband was supposed to be arriving in a few days. I was supposed to be safe and sound back in Juneau by the time this started happening. I was totally not prepared to be anyone's birth partner at that point. As an example of how unfamiliar with all of this I was, a few months earlier in the summer, I was visiting a friend and her one-month-old baby, and I actually used one of her nursing pads as a coaster for my beer. <laughs> I thought I was being really fancy by using a coaster. So, you know, despite my total incompetence in this arena, I did get Erica to the birth center um, at about 5 a.m. the following morning and served as her birth partner for about six hours until her husband finally arrived from Cordova. And then as soon as he got there, I got out of there so fast. I think I high-fived him on my way out. I took their truck, got it filled with gas, I got their car seat installed at the fire station, 
And then on my way back to the birth center, I realized that I was really, really hungry. And the only food I can think of for the entire city of Anchorage was McDonald's. Um, now, I normally eat McDonald's about once a year. It always grosses me out. I immediately regret it. But that day, it's all I could think about. Went up to the drive-thru, got some chicken nuggets, french fries, a Coke, and also a chocolate milkshake just to really round it out. Brought it all back to the birth center. And then when I got there, I realized I was probably the only person who's ever brought McDonald's into this beautiful birth center. Felt like I could just see the chemicals like seeping into the walls covering the smell of incense. It was like a big F you to the kale chips and coconut water and <laughs> fancy yogurts. But you know, I had no regrets. Best McDonald's I've ever had. <laughs> so after I finished up, you know, stuffed my trash way down, tried to hide it. I said my goodbyes to Erica and Dan, and Dan looked totally bewildered. I hopped on a plane back to Juneau, and a few hours later, Erica gave birth to a healthy baby girl. So this whole experience taught me a lot about labor and delivery and what I want for my own upcoming experience. Ironically, Erica was 11 days from her due date when all this happened, and today marks 11 days before my due date, so watch out. <laughs> but you know, my car seat's already installed, I have lots of nursing pads on hand, and my husband over there is not allowed outside of a 10-mile radius of me or McDonald's. In a few short days, I'll be able to say, my name's Margot, daughter of Barbara, granddaughter of Anne, mother of Roger Walter. Thanks. I've got to tell you how it makes me feel when you call. Me, baby I never heard a word that sounded so real as when you called You're listening to a recording of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event on KTOO News Juno. These stories were recorded on February 14th, 2017 at the Northern Light United Church. The theme for the evening was Up in the Air. Curious? Visit mudrooms.org. Joel Curtis grew up in Tidewater of Virginia in the 50s and 60s just across a marsh from a secret CIA base called Camp Perry, AKA the farm. He hung out all of his summer days at the local swimming pool till he was old enough to work at the local swimming pool. After stint in the Air Force, Joel studied meteorology. He has been a forecaster with the National Weather Service for over 34 years. Most of his career has been in Alaska and the last decade in Juneau. Joel would rather surf than eat. He often spends time in Yakutat. Please welcome Joel to the stage. I knew from about age five that I was going in the United States Air Force and I was going to fly airplanes. I knew this. So 
three years in military high school kind of drives you crazy a little bit. And then you get, I was in ROTC in college, I could drill the drillers. And so I got out, 1972, Vietnam War is going on, okay? And I've got orders to go to flight school. Turned out I was not going to be a pilot, I was going to be a navigator. And uh, something weighing heavily on our minds at the time was some uh, very disastrous offensive measures that the Air Force had taken over in North Vietnam. And the last thing that anybody wanted to be in was a B-52, that great big bomber that they designed and built in 1958, way back when, still flying. But the thing about the navigators was the navigators ejected downward. I got really straight for navigator school. I mean, I just like, you know, I'm going to start towing the line here, and, you know, I got really serious about studying, and I seemed to be a pretty good navigator. So uh, I got fairly high class standing, and I had a choice between the back seat of an F 4 fighter bomber or a C-130. I definitely didn't want the air tankers, I didn't want the B-52s and all of that stuff, so I get, you get to choose on your class standing. So I thought about it and all my instructors came up to me and said, hey, you know, you have the personality to go to C-130s. Okay, so I, I made that decision based on, on them and you end up going to flight school uh, for C-130s in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I went to a couple of survival schools and my next stop was Clark in the Philippines. And it turned out that uh, we had a forward operating base in Thailand called Utapau. It's down on the uh, Gulf of Siam. It's a very beautiful place. And the Paris Accords had been signed. So early in January 1973, the Paris Accords had been signed and, and that the U.S. had really, really pulled out. And by the time I got over there in 1974, there really wasn't a lot of U.S. military either in Cambodia or Vietnam. But of course, the C-130 transports went in and out of Vietnam. So, we had this uh, very, very special mission, and something very strange happened to me on one of these missions. We had what we call diplomatic missions into Hanoi, North Vietnam. Now, this is just after the U.S. has stopped firing weapons, okay? And what we would do is we would fly into Saigon, the air base there was called Tan Sanut, and because a lot of bad things were still happening in Vietnam, we had to take the defensive measures. And so just to show you what an adventure junkie I was, I'd volunteer to be an extra crewman on these C-130s that were going in and out of Vietnam and Cambodia. Well, one of the things that you do is you're a door gunner. Now, it doesn't sound as sinister as you might think. It's a defensive thing. So what you do is you put on a parachute or a restraining harness and you get up in the door of the C-130. The loadmaster got dibs on the ramp. So they'd lower the ramp down in the back of this big cargo plane and the, and the loadmaster would lie on his belly out there and he would hold a flare pistol out there. And if they shot a heat-seeking rocket up at us, you'd fire off the flare and be screaming over, hot mic, break right, break left, you know, get out of here. Okay, well, that sounds pretty exciting. And I'm just like, I'm a nutsoid guy, you know? I mean, I'm just really, really into adventure. 
And so all the kings and queens and tribal chieftains and dictators down through history and even presidents count on it that somewhere that there's a, a large percentage of young men between the ages of 15 and 25 that feel like they're invincible. So the first time I get up to this doorway to, for our defensive measures, I'm going like, God, man, it's 20,000 feet down there. And you know, you've got a, a parachute on, but that doesn't mean much. So you get used to it. And you're hanging out the door and you're just looking around and making sure no rockets are being shot up at you. Okay, so we had one of these diplomatic missions in Hanoi. And I was the extra crew member, so I was not up in the front navigating the airplane. And as you fly in Hanoi, the uh, uh, air traffic controllers speak absolutely perfect American English. You know, they've been listening to it for five years. So anyway, so we would fly in there, but I was stationed in the back, and of course you didn't have to do any defensive measures going to Hanoi. I sat down next to a North Vietnamese officer. And I said, you know, in any other situation, this guy would just gladly slip my throat. I'm going to take advantage of this and talk to the guy. So I started talking to him. We showed each other our pictures. I showed him a picture of my mom. He showed me a picture of his family. And he had a little chess set there. And it's one of those things where you know put the pegs in the holes and stuff. And we started playing a chess game, playing chess with the enemy. And I look over, and there's an army major over there in the doorway. And if looks could kill, I'd be dead. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, the guy, you know, had lo probably lost a lot of his buddies and stuff like this, but here's this unique opportunity to be actually doing something human with somebody who's the enemy, okay? So we played dress, and it was a war of attrition. We were trading pieces just like, just like it's the end of the Vietnam War, you know, trading pieces. You know, they, they suffered terribly in Vietnam. We lost the cream of our youth. Okay, but I had this opportunity to talk to this guy, and when we landed, and they got off, and they take their diplomatic pouches off the air, and they were peace negotiators, and so they switched them out for some four other guys, and we got on the plane, and I had the leg back, so I, I flew the airplane. But I often wonder, you know, whatever happened to that guy, you know? It's a mid-40s, and, and he probably had to go on in his military career, and, and Vietnam, just because we left, and finally they got all of South Vietnam on April 30th of 1975, but they still had war going on, and I just, you know, I really hope the guy made it. Wonder what happened to him. Thank you. Kathy Munoz is our next storyteller. Kathy was born and raised in Juneau and grew up on Chicken Ridge in the home where her father Elton was also raised. Growing up, Kathy spent summers working in Bristol Bay and Yakutat in the family fishing business. A graduate of the University of the Pacific, Kathy earned a bachelor's degree in political science and Latin American studies. She also spent a year of study at the University of Spain at Granada. Kathy is married to Juan Munoz and is the mother of Mercedes and Matthew and the new grandmother of Nora Ree, who was born on January 11th. Kathy is a small business owner, 
served seven years on the CBJ Assembly and eight years in the State House. Please welcome Kathy to the stage. Good evening. Um, my story starts in 1980. I was 15, growing up in Juneau, and I received this most amazing dog. He was uh, half English Bulldog and half Lab Mix, and he was my constant companion. We hiked all of the trails around Juneau. He was very loyal, super loving, very affectionate, a great dog. He was all black, and he looked a lot like a lab, but he had a really big chest like a, an English bulldog. He was a big dog and kind of a bigger head than a lab. Um, but, he, he, you know, he was a great adventurous dog. He could have really starred in, this, in the pages of a great adventure story like Call of the Wild or, or any other um, uh, books of, those, of, of that genre. About six or so months after, no, about a year after we got him, um, he was out in the yard up in the at the house on Chicken Ridge, and a little girl was walking by the house, and he got up and he ferociously jumped on the fence and ferociously barked at the little girl and scared her very, very badly. Well, when I got home from school that day, my, my dad and my mom were there waiting for me, and they said, you know, Kathy, we cannot keep this dog. We have to, we have to get rid of the dog. There's, it's just a bad mix having a dog, an unpredictable dog in a neighborhood, right? So, of course, I was devastated because I was very close. He was my constant companion, my hiking buddy, and I love this dog. Um, but anyway, the next day, um, my dad uh, radioed out on the marine radio to Taku Harbor, where a friend of his lived, uh, Ken Marlowe, and he told him the story, and he said, you know, we got this dog. Would you be interested in taking him? And he said, yes, go ahead and send him out. So the next day, we, we packed him up, and we put him on a seaplane, and we sent him out to Taku Harbor. Well, then about six months passed, and it was in the fall, as I recall, the late fall, November. My mother and I had been um, doing something in the community. We were coming home that evening. We came up Main Street. We got to the top of Main Street. We pull into their house, and, and I see this black dog running gleefully around the car, really active, you know, jumping and, and super excited. And at first, I didn't, you know, it didn't connect with me who, who the dog was, but... Um, in a, kind of in a flash, when we stopped, I realized it was Sam, my dog. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Was Sam Ken, the new owner, was not present, and Sam was here from Taku Harbor. And uh, so we go into the house, and of course, my dad was nonplussed. He was like, no, 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 we're not going to keep that dog. You know, the dog's going back to Taku Harbor. But it was very perplexing because Ken wasn't with the dog. So we went to the boat harbor. We looked for Ken. He had a boat and couldn't find him. So we radioed back out to Taku Harbor the next day. And Ken said, well, yeah, you know, the dog's been missing for three or four days. And, you know, um, I think maybe what happened was he jumped on a boat that was parked in Taku Harbor, and it was heading into Juneau. And when it got to Aurora Basin, the dog jumped off, Sam jumped off the boat and he ran up to Chicken Ridge, which is really incredible. I mean, it's an incredible journey and perseverance uh, on the part of Sam. 
Uh, but anyway, we had to pack him up the next day and send him back to Taku Harbor. Well, then about a year passed, and I was in downtown Juneau, and I ran into Ken, and I asked Ken, I said, how's Sam doing? And he said, well, Kathy, it's very interesting. One evening, it was a beautiful sunny evening, and I went to feed the dog, and we heard a howl of a wolf on the hillside, and the dog tore off, and that was the last I saw of him. And I was like, whoa, you know, that, that really hit Shay, you know. <laughs> you know, that was a real powerful moment. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, he must have met his demise, right? But that wasn't the end of the story. About 10 or 15 years later, I was um, living up on Star Hill. I have a little girl. I'm married. And one day, it was a Sunday, I was reading the uh, Sunday paper, the newspaper, and there was a story, a feature story, about a small band of black wolves that lived in Taku Harbor. And I was like, I was just amazed. It was such an, a, a magical moment for me that I realized in that moment that Sam had lived on. And that was incredible, powerful, powerful for me, and I'm very happy that I could share it with you tonight. Thank you. Our next speaker tonight is Brett Collins. Brett found his way to Juneau from New Zealand, so he wants to apologize in advance if you can't understand his accent. His wife still asks him to repeat himself at least once an hour. He enjoys exploring the outdoors, snowboarding, climbing, and hiking. He also likes pina coladas, getting caught in the rain, as well as long walks on the beach with his dog, Taku. Please welcome Brett to the stage. Being fairly new to Juno, I still feel like I'm introducing myself like on a daily basis to at least a dozen people. Conversation usually goes something like this. Hi, I'm Brett. Brett? No, Brett. Brett? No, Brett. B-R-E-T-T. -T. Oh, Brett. Oh. So what part of Australia are you from? I'm not. I'm from New Zealand. Way to piss off a Kiwi. So, Brett, how'd, how do you find yourself up in Juneau? How'd you get up here? Well, I was down in Patagonia, El Cholten, and I was on a hike, and I was walking through a valley called the Valley of the Winds. And on this particular day, that valley lived up to its name. It was windy. It was blowing really hard, but luckily for us, the wind was at our backs. It was blowing so hard that we were kind of in a bit of a run, kind of sprinting even at times when it was truly gusting. It was pretty impressive because we had like 30-pound backpacks on. Now beside me was my hiking partner, a lovely young lady called Yvonne. I'd met her about a week before, and the previous night in our tent, we'd gotten together for the first time. This is, this is a little bit of a love story. It is Valentine's Day after all. I'd managed to woo her that night by uh, filling up a plastic bottle with hot water and putting it in her sleeping bag to heat her feet up. She shuffled her sleeping pad a little bit closer to mine and yeah. So that day we were, 
we were running through the valley of the wind, the big strong gusts at our back making us sprint, and it, it was fun. We were really enjoying it. Like, had big silly grins on our face like Usain Bolt in the 100 meter races. All of a sudden, this big gust builds up and it whips down the mountain and hits a dry riverbed of the valley and it picks us up. And when I mean pick us up, it sent us flying. We went through the air. You know, like in my mind, we flew probably like 30 or 40 feet. I mean, I'm sure it was probably only six, but it felt like a long, long way. And it was good. It was, it was a split second there. It was actually amazing. Like gravity had no hold on me and I was literally flying through the air, 30 pound pack at all. But of course, there was a landing to negotiate and it wasn't pretty. I bounced. Yvonne, as it turns out, she'd managed to somehow go sideways and spin in the air and, and when I turned around and looked back, she was actually being blown across the dry riverbed like a cheese over a cheese grater. Now this is a bit of the story that I'm kind of a little bit ashamed to say. I didn't go on to help Yvonne. I, I got up and just made a beeline out of there. I just, I just wanted to get out of the valley. It wasn't fun anymore. Despite that, me and Yvonne ended up hanging out for the next two months traveling around. Our holiday fling got serious enough that we would go book into a backpackers or a hostel, we'd, we'd get a double occupancy private room. And it was a great two months. But as all you know, holiday flings happen, we kind of ended up going our separate ways. I stayed off on in South America and she flew off on a new adventure. But we kept talking. Skype's a wonderful thing these days. And soon I was talking every single night. Uh, when it was time for me to leave South America, I jumped on a plane to head back to New Zealand with a very small detour up to New York, where Yvonne was. Two weeks, it was great. And, but this time in the, in the airport, you know, we kind of had a vague promise to try and see if we could make a relationship work. But, you know, it was pretty difficult. I mean, she's in the Coast Guard, so uh, it was pretty hard for her to just, like, kind of give up a career to come to New Zealand. And, and despite what Donald Trump tells you, it's actually incredibly hard to get a visa to come and work and live in, in the States. <laughs> Honestly, it'd be easy to climb over a big giant wall. <laughs> so we broke up. Uh, I was on Skype. A lot of our life decisions seem to be on Skype. And uh, breaking up was, it sucks. You know, I'm sure everybody here has been through it and, and it hurt. It hurt way more than when I, you know, hit the deck in the valley of the winds. Um, and so I, you know, I kind of felt I just couldn't leave it the way it was. And so I uh, had a look in my bank account and I kind of figured with a bit of tightening of the belt, I could probably live in New York for a couple of months. But, you know, the long, uh, about as long as what a tourist visa kind of gives me. And so I, I did. I jumped on an airplane and came over to New York for a few months. And, and it was amazing. Um, so amazing that I kind of ended up flying back and forth across the Pacific Ocean seven times in two and a half years to kind of make this relationship work. You can imagine coming in and out of the country that many times. Border control started asking questions, got pulled off into side rooms occasionally. Um, but eventually... You know, the last time I flew into the country, I had the answer. I had an engagement visa in my hand. We'd, we'd gotten engaged. It was a very romantic story. It was on Skype. <laughs> kind of went something like this. This is me. Man, it sucks being apart. Yvonne. Yeah. Why don't we just get married? Me. Sure, why not? 
Yvonne. So does this mean we're engaged? Me? Yeah, I guess it is. So about eight months ago, I flew back into the country with my engagement visa. No problems getting through security. Headed on to New York. Uh, Yvonne had just gotten her papers to uh, come up to Juneau for her next um, stint with the Coast Guard. So we packed up the car, drove across country. Had a little stop in Vegas. Elvis drove us into the chapel. <laughs> sung us some songs. And pronounced us man and wife. So now we're up here in Juneau and I'm loving it and I'm flying again. You know, I've got my beautiful wife is here and she's, you know, usually by my side and, and it's amazing. At Yvonne this time, you know, we're flying now, but if we do deck on the ground again, I promise I'll be there to pick you up this time. <laughs> Thank you. Our final storyteller of the evening is David Noon. David grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, and has taught American history at UAS for the past 15 years. A recovering English major, he writes about politics, literature, and pop culture, and he believes Abraham Lincoln would handily defeat any other American president in an alley fight. Last summer, while back in Virginia and attending a national endowment for the Humanities Seminar on Veterans in American Society, he attended a Donald Trump rally in his hometown because he thought it would be funny. He apologizes for his lack of clairvoyance. <laughs> Please welcome David. So... When, when I teach the American Civil War, I, I always end with a reflection on Walt Whitman's poem, When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, which was his funeral elegy for Abraham Lincoln. Now, Whitman never participated in the conflict, but he did serve for several years as a volunteer nurse in Washington, D.C., caretaking for the wounded and absorbing his fill of war's horror. In Lilacs, toward the end of the poem, Whitman has a vision. He's gazing out over a field somewhere in the vicinity of Washington, D.C., and he imagines armies arrayed against each other, and he sees flags shredded, pierced by missiles, and he surveys the human toll. And he writes, I saw battle corpses, myriads of them, and the white skeletons of young men, I saw them. I saw the debris and debris of all the slain soldiers of the war. But I saw they were not as was thought. They themselves were fully at rest. They suffered not. The living remained and suffered. The mother suffered. The wife and child and musing comrade suffered. And the armies that remained suffered. This is a story or kind of a stab at a story, uh, about two helicopter pilots who trained together and flew and served separately in Vietnam, 1967-1968, which were arguably uh, the worst years in what was a ceaselessly atrocious and obscene war. One pilot was Chief Warrant Officer Kenneth Messenger, whose name is one of 199 that are etched on panel 55E of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C. 
Uh, Kenneth Messenger served in the 366th Assault Helicopter Corps based in Sok Tron, which is down in the Mekong Delta in the southern part of South Vietnam. And he was killed on May 5th, 1968, struck in the middle of the night by a mortar shell during phase two of the Tet Offensive, sometimes called Little Tet or Mini Tet. He was 27, and he was three weeks from going home to be with his parents and his siblings in Wanta, New York, which is on Long Island. The second pilot was my father, Orrin James Noon, Jr., who survived the war. He was a musing comrade. He was one among the armies that remained. He was a pilot in the 129th Assault Helicopter Corps, which was based in Kinyan in the northern part of South Vietnam. He outlived his friend, Ken, by 40 years before pancreatic cancer devoured him in 2007. For the past 10 years, I've been trying to figure out the story, or any story, that connects those two, to kind of fill in the empty space of memory that both men left behind. The only thing that I had to go on, and it, still the only thing I really have, is a single photograph that my father took sometime in the mid-1990s of Ken Messenger's name on panel 55E. Uh, my brothers, my younger brothers were with him at the time. They said it was the only time they ever saw my father cry. It was the only time he ever visited the wall, and this was the only picture that he took. I don't know why he took a picture of Ken Messenger's name, but my preoccupation with this photo, which I didn't discover until the night he died or the night after he died, so I couldn't ask him. That's the great disadvantage to having a dead parent. You can't ask them to clarify things. But we found this photo while we were scanning a lifetime's worth of images that occasionally raised questions we couldn't possibly answer. Uh, we were also smoking the rest of his dope, which was <laughs> also a, a good thing when your parents leave behind uh, a stash. But um, my, my preoccupation with this photo has led me to ask every living relative of mine for any shred of information. I've tracked down childhood friends of Ken Messenger's. I have spoken with pilots who trained with and knew them both. I have read the same obituaries dozens of times in the absurd hope that some new piece of information would reveal itself. Uh, I wrote a letter to Ken Messenger's younger sister. I, I don't know if she ever received it, but I wanted her to know that 30 years after his brother, her brother's passing, my father remembered him and missed him. Now, Lilacs is a poem that meditates on the question of how to move on uh, after war, how to resume the awful work of living, how to reconcile oneself to survival, how to plant in the fields that were so recently heaped with death. Whitman's poem is occasioned by Lincoln's funeral procession, the train that takes him from D.C. back to Springfield. And as Whitman is watching this train pass and kind of gazing upon uh, Lincoln's coffin, he hears the song of a hermit thrush, and he asks, you know, how shall I myself warble for the dead one there that I loved? Now, Whitman was writing about Lincoln, but Whitman also tended to the wounded and the dying in the war. And he knew, because he's writing an elegy, which is never about one person, 
It's about everyone. Whitman knew that in writing about Lincoln, he was writing about, as he put it, all the coffins, all the lives extinguished by the war. Now, my father was an English major, and he was more taken to the British rather than the American Romantics, so he read Wordsworth and Blake rather than Whitman or, God forbid, Thoreau. Uh, I think if you can throw shade at Thoreau when you're mourning, it's always a good thing as well, um, when you're high. Um, <laughs> But uh, I think my father would have understood the musing comrade. Like a lot of veterans of that war, he rarely spoke of it and never discussed the men he knew whose lives were lost. He would have known seven men from his company who were killed while he was there. As a maintenance officer, he would have retrieved the bodies, the debris of the slain soldiers and the debris of their downed Hueys. He would have known at least a half dozen others from his company who died in the following year. Uh, and he would have known countless others, uh, like Ken Messenger, uh, who perished elsewhere in the war. As I said, I don't know why my father took this photo, but I do know that my father understood that Ken was one of 58,195 names on that wall that are arrayed within sight of the memorial to Whitman's beloved Lincoln. My father was not a warbler, he was not a poet, he didn't know how, I don't think, to uh, warble for the dead one and the dead ones that he loved. Uh, but I'm doing my best <laughs> to kind of figure out what the elegy is that he couldn't write. Uh, and so, uh, thank you. Mall of Kintyre, Mall of Kintyre, oh, is strolling in from the sea, my desire is always to be here, oh, Mall of Kintyre. This is KTOO News, Juno 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded on February 14, 2017. The theme for the evening was Up in the Air, stories of flying, confusion, and where we landed. To tell your story or to find out about the next live event, visit mudrooms.org. Audio production by Rich Moniak. Additional help from Alita Buss, Tom Cosgrove, Pat Roach, Steve Suing, Kristen Stouter, and Sarah Hannon. Music by Jim and Michelle Hale. I'm Amanda Compton. Have a good night. Mm.